this week on the Backtable podcast. I think that we need to work more towards identifying who are the best patients for this treatment. Maybe there is a prophylactic role here that may have some long-term consequences or long-term benefits as well. So I think one aspect is towards the identifying the right group of patients. I think the second thing is the acceptability of the intervention. I think that from an interventionist standpoint, as more and more people try it and they see the results, I think we're gaining more acceptance from the interventional community. I think there's probably still a component of education and data sharing that needs to be done with physicians that actually usually manage migraines through medical treatment and also perhaps more education that's required from a patient perspective so they understand what this therapeutic intervention can look like and what to expect. We have to generate more data to achieve all of that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Paul Bogle. I'm a consultant interventional neuroradiologist at the Royal London Hospital in the United Kingdom. I'm also the founder of Brain Conference, which is a innovative neurointerventional conference that happens once a year in December. Last year, I had the pleasure of inviting to speak Professor Adnan Qureshi, and we discussed and he presented his groundbreaking work on the use of lidocaine injected intraarterially to deal into the middle meningeal artery to deal and treat people who were suffering from intractable status migranus. It's a pleasure to have you, Professor Qureshi. Perhaps you could introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background. Oh, thank you so much, Paul, for having me here. So my name is Adnan Qureshi. I'm actually a professor of neurology at University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. I'm also the executive director of the Zenith Qureshi Stroke Institutes. And I've also served as the past president of the Society of Vascular and Interventional Neurology and also the International Society of Interventional Neurology. So as part of being on the national forefront and international forefront, obviously one of the things that we've always looked at, how can we expand the field of neurointervention and provide more cures to the diseases that don't have a cure? That's quite an extensive resume there, so it's a real pleasure that you could find the time to speak to us. So I thought maybe we could just start with what, what we know about what causes migraine, what potentially causes headaches in general. And from my personal experience, when I was at medical school, I was taught that the migraine was caused by sort of vascular disturbances of the peel blood vessels. So the peel blood vessels are middle cerebral artery, anterior cerebral arteries, those blood supply to the brain. Could you just give us a little bit of an update perhaps on, on what we know now, what's currently going on? So there's two points about a migraine that I think we have a lot of data on. One of them is the blood vessels that actually are responsible. So I think it's always known that migraine has, is a vascular disease. And I think part of it is the characteristics of the migraine, the pulsating headaches that are very unique and synchronous with the pulsation in the arteries. So obviously 
that relationship has been suspected for decades now. The second thing is what blood vessels, and it seems like the migraine has been attributed to is the middle meningeal artery, which is a set of blood vessels that lie over the dura. And there are nausea receptors that surround the branches of the middle meningeal artery and seem to be the trigger for migraines. The other thing we've also known is the brain itself doesn't have any pain nerve endings. So really, in terms of structure within the cranium, it is the dura that has the pain nerve ending. So putting it all together, it's always been suspected that middle meningeal artery has some role in the genesis of migraine. Yeah, no, so I agree with you. And last year we heard from some headache specialists at Brain Conference where they said actually that a lot of the migraine specialists, they fall into two camps actually. So one camp, which is often the case in medicine, right? One disease has at least 10 different people with 15 different ideas. But in general, they were saying that there's sort of two camps. One camp at the moment is the middle meningeal artery camp and the other camp is the sort of the peel vessel camp. I mean, I've certainly come across some literature and some papers where they've now been doing high resolution MR angiography studies looking for which blood vessels are dilating at the time of triggering a migraine. And certainly some of those studies are showing that there's dilatation and abnormal dilatation on the side of the migraine in the middle meningeal arteries when you trigger the headache. So I think some of this stuff that you're mentioning is really interesting. So how long have you been in, interested in, in migraines and headaches in general? So we started in uh, 2014. And initially we actually just started with people who had headaches because of stretch of the dura, so a underlying mass lesion. So that made perfect sense. The dura actually has pain nerve ending. There is dural stretch that's attributing the headache. So it made sense to actually inject medication in the middle meningeal artery to anesthetize the dura. And interestingly, when we tried it, we saw the headache went away within five minutes. So clearly the proof of principle, so to say. And then subsequently over the years, we have done more work on the topic. One of the things we also did is that we identified uh, since the trigeminal nerve ganglion has contribution to the migraine. In addition, trigeminal nerve ganglion is responsible for trigeminal neuralgia. So we also identified the blood vessel that originates from the middle meningeal artery and actually supplies branches to the, the foramen of whale where the trigeminal ganglion is located or trigeminal nerve ganglion is located. And we demonstrated with electrophysiologic studies that once you inject lidocaine in the middle meningeal artery, you can actually suppress the trigeminal nerve ganglion activity. So you actually have the electrophysiologic correlate of the blink reflex, which is again mediated partly through the trigeminal nerve, and you can actually demonstrate that it is eliminated during injection of lidocaine in the middle meningeal artery. So kind of two parallel pathways. One is actually giving the medication through the middle meningeal artery and perhaps actually anesthetizing the nausea receptor that surround or the type C unmyelinated receptor that surround the branches of the middle meningeal artery, and perhaps some of it through or suppression of the trigeminal ganglion or trigeminal nerve ganglion as well. So there's potentially a dual action, is what you're saying. Exactly. So there's two different mechanisms or two complementary mechanisms for the pathogenesis of migraine, and it seemed like injecting a anesthetic in the middle meningeal artery could act through either or both. Okay. And so just to come back to your original sort of hypothesis, so what sort of things were you treating in the beginning when you said diseases that were causing stretch of the dura? Do you mean things like meningiomas or parenchymal brain tumors that were stretching the dura? What led you to that initial sort of thought process? 
So initially, we treated patients who had an underlying mass lesion in the parenchyma with a documented stretch on the dura. And one of the things is that whenever we do an invasive procedure, to kind of jump to an invasive procedure just dedicated to something that we don't know about is a little hard to go forward. So essentially, the angiogram is done for a diagnostic purpose, and we can add a second component. So that's how we started. Okay, okay, okay. So it was parenchymal lesions such as tumors and things like this that were basically stretching the dura rather than like a meningioma that is all durally based or originating from the dura. Okay, that's very interesting. And you say that you saw the symptom relief occur basically within minutes of the injection. Is that correct? That is correct. Within five minutes, our patients reported that their symptoms have gone away. Yeah, so you're, so you're doing these procedures with the patients awake, essentially, right, to monitor them, just like we would a standard cerebral angiogram. Okay, and in those patients, the half-life of lidocaine is very short. So how long were these patients' responses? So we actually did this, our studies, in three steps. First is we just wanted to do proof of principle, whether there is even an effect on headaches. So once we noticed that there was an immediate effect on uh, elimination of headaches, then we actually started to document the duration of the obliteration of headaches. So in the next series of patients, we actually did a daily diary of the maximum headache. So essentially, we treated patients whose initial headache was graded somewhere between 8 and 10, over 10 in the severity scale. And we documented for the first 48 hours, there was no headache. And then after the first 48 hours, the headache started coming back. But even at day seven, the intensity of headache was still less than what it was before the injection. So surprisingly, the duration was far longer than we had anticipated. I mean, as the half of a lidocaine in best case scenario is only 45 minutes. And for an injection, a solution that just went through the middle meningeal artery over minutes, it's kind of, one would think that mechanism action would be shorter, but actually we noticed, and it was consistent, so people who are grading the same scale, independent of each other, are saying the same thing. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I presume that your thought process around this is that somehow the lidocaine is, is almost having like a reset feature for the nociceptor response, so that you're, you're kind of resetting the, the dural response and the, the nerve endings around the vasculature back to a more baseline level. Is that, is that, would that be a fair supposition for me to say? I think that in general, it's been noted that for any uh, nerve block, so to say, the mechanism of action exceeds the half-life of lidocaine. So there's always been that gap between the biologic half-life of lidocaine and the duration of the therapeutic effect. And one of the theories has been that in patients who have severe pain, they're almost in a state of hypervigilance, and it seems like there is neuronal hyperexcitability, and surprisingly more at the level of the thalamus than at the level of the peripheral nerve itself. And actually just interrupting the cycle of pain allows these neurons to reset, and as you said, go back to baseline. So they've lost that hypervigilance, which is actually contributing to this unrelenting cycle of pain. That's really interesting, actually. I didn't know that, actually. But that's why I'm here talking to you, right? So, <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, it's not that dissimilar to the sort of the old gate theory of pain that, that we learn at medical school and things like that. So, so that's really yeah. actually very fascinating. So, and are you still doing the treatments for people with sort of mass effect from, from underlying tumors? So we actually don't do it that frequently because now our patient population are those with intractable headaches, predominantly status migraines. Okay. 
So could you just perhaps for those people listening who've never come across a patient with status migranus, could you maybe just describe some of the symptoms that they have or, or just how they describe what's going on with their headache? Because many of us might be able to relate with regards to a headache that passes with some paracetamol, ibuprofen, what have you. But most people probably can't relate to an unrelenting headache, thankfully. So status migraineus is, in a broader scale, a very severe form of migraine. There is some debate on where that severity threshold is defined. I think one is the duration. If the headache is uninterrupted or continues relentlessly for 48 hours, then it's considered status migraineus. With the caveat that at least two or three medications have been tried already, and those actually include opioids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication or some of the triptans. So a combination has already been tried without effect on migraine. Now, as you can imagine, the people who have status migraineus already have a very severe form of migraine before they even entered the status structure. So I think that, you know, in general, those are people who are very debilitated. And, you know, it's not uncommon the patients that we've treated have really no activities of daily living. I think they're in bed constantly. They've given up on their jobs. Their sleep quality is very poor. And obviously, all of that is coming in and interfering with their quality of life. Okay, so, I mean, these people basically, they're sort of at their wit's end, aren't they, really? They have very little options. In fact, they're out of options, realistically, from a standard medication approach. And so, if you could tell me about potentially some of the other options, because there, there are sort of other surgical options that sometimes these people opt for nerve releases and things like this. What are those other options before we come back to the sort of intra-arterial lidocaine? So some of the options, one is actually admitting them and putting them on intravenous lidocaine infusion. So intravenous lidocaine infusion has been tried with some success. I think that people have tried intravenous ketamine with some success. I think that there are certain surgical procedures as well with the thought that um, the supratrochlear nerve is actually somehow responsible for initiating migraines. And perhaps as the supratrochlear nerve emerges from some of the bone foramens, it's actually being compressed to the point that it's constantly under irritation on insectability. So perhaps more of a decompression procedure to relieve some of the pressure on these nerves that they're emerging into the, onto the surface of the face has been tried as well. So there are clearly other options, perhaps a little bit more invasive than the classic option that we use an outpatient and the emergency departments. Yeah, so, and these people, are, I presume, they're willing to go to these sorts of extremes for surgical decompressions and things like that as well, aren't they? It's actually interesting that yeah, the, the, the quality of life interference and the interference and in activity of daily living in people with poorly controlled migraine is so severe. And it's almost surprising that if you look at imaging in the brain, you don't see any abnormality and yet you see people who are extremely debilitated. Yeah. And have you come across any patients who are sort of so debilitated, just like sometimes with pulsatile tinnitus, that they're sort of almost bordering suicidal? Yes. So there are clearly patients who are so emotionally distraught. And I mean, obviously, there's a strong psychological component, psychoaffective component goes with migraines, which is quite understandable if your quality of life is so poor and you're unable to do your activities of daily living. And particularly since migraine actually involves people in very active ages of the life. So, I mean, it's not people who, I mean, we're talking about people in their 20s, 30s and 40s. So clearly people in the most active years of their life being so debilitated. Yeah. And I mean, it must really, if you've got a young family or if you've got 
obviously many of these people, like you say, are very active, so they'll have work and other commitments and to take them away from those things that they may have spent many years sort of building up, as it were, to take them out of that basically. And actually for many people, they'll, if you explain a headache for many people, they'll just say, oh, I have a headache and why can't you just get on with your life kind of thing. Must be pretty hard to tolerate as well, I imagine. Especially, as you say, with normal brain imaging, again, there's probably a lot of medics who will say, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. So I think there is, there is, like you say, a degree of education that needs to, to happen around these particularly severe migraines. So what sort of percentage of people suffering from a migraine would you say actually end up with something like status migranus or are a migraine which, for example, the triptans or the standard medications just aren't really helping any longer? I think that migraine that's poorly controlled as a reason for visit to the emergency department is surprisingly a very common problem. So if you look at patients in their younger years, the reason to come to the emergency department being a poorly controlled migraine is very common. I think that the prevalence itself differs. I think in general, 30% of the people who have migraine would say that migraine is poorly controlled despite everything they're using. And obviously, a smaller fraction of them would actually have migraine to such severity that we would actually end up classifying as status migraineus. Now, the other thing is that every migraine patient, at least 30% of them would have status migraineus at some point in their life. So because this is a lifelong disease, at least in the younger years. So you have a very long period of exposure where the control on migraine may vary depending on many factors. And obviously, at some point, it can tip off and go into a status migraineus. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting, actually. I didn't realize that the numbers were so high. Because obviously, in the US and, and in Europe and elsewhere around the world, we're talking about millions of people who suffer from migraine and probably with increased levels of stress and things like this that affect many people around the world on a daily basis, probably actually the prevalence of migraine and headaches in general will actually only go up. So actually, finding new ways to treat these conditions is probably actually of paramount importance. So it's really interesting that you said, I didn't realize that one in three people could end up having effectively uncontrollable migraines, whether that's up to the point of status migranus or not. So you started treating patients with status migranus with direct intraarterial injections of lidocaine. So perhaps could you just run us through what you discuss with them in the clinic, the risk factors? How would you consent someone for this treatment? So that's a very important question. Obviously, we are in a very early phase of developing this treatment. This is not considered an established treatment as of yet. Obviously, the interest is increasing considerably as many practitioners have tried and have reported a lot of success. So most of the time, our patients are due for an angiogram for another reason. As you know, that people who have status migraineus, the other concern is that they may have reversible cerebral vasoconstrictive syndrome. So some of these patients are actually referred to either exclude vasculitis or this RCVS, which is Reversible Cerebrovascular Constriction Syndrome. As part of doing the angiogram, we already talked to the patient that there's something that we can add to the procedure. May help your headache, may not help your headaches. And essentially, the risk, we don't know the long-term or the short-term risk. Uh, there's clearly some unknowns here, but in the limited number of people that we've treated, they have reported very good success. And as you can imagine, the people who have severe headaches who are running out of options, they are quite willing 
to try something that doesn't necessarily, it's not an invasive procedure just for that. It's an add-on to an invasive procedure that is already indicated. So, I mean, basically, if we were, let's say, to go down three, four, five years down the pathway, and this has been shown to be effective, and certainly some of the preliminary work that you've presented and published sounds very compelling, and there is actually an ongoing study, I think, run by Nathan Manning down in Australia looking at invasive treatments of the middle meningeal artery for the treatment of headaches. Essentially, that procedure could be done via a transradial approach with very low risk because, for example, if you could almost mitigate the risks, even the small risks that we quote for a cerebral angiogram of a stroke and things like that, because actually you will not necessarily have to go into the internal carotid artery. And so if you're in the external, if your catheter is in the external carotid artery, then, you know, and you're doing the, the angiographic studies there. And presumably you're doing these studies, as you mentioned earlier, with the patient awake so that you can monitor them and monitor the headache. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. Actually, all the procedures that we have done, we've done awake. And so when you inject the lidocaine, wh- where, whereabouts do you put your microcatheter? Do, do you tend to leave it in the sort of the very proximal part of the middle meningeal artery or do you tend to track it into the petrous branch or where do you leave the microcatheter? So we usually place it uh, just before the origin of the anterior and posterior dura branches. Okay, so basically as it comes up through the petrous canal effectively, and then you leave it there. Exactly. Okay. Part of the reason is to avoid actually having reflux back into the internal maxillary artery. So perhaps not trying to anesthetize regions supplied by blood vessels that are not involved in the genesis of migraine. Okay. And so with regards to the lidocaine injection itself, what sort of dose are you giving? So we have been actually giving 100 milligram. So it's a, a 50 milligram on each side. So basically it's a 50 milligram diluted in 50 ml. So it's one milligram an ml. And sometimes we actually try two milligram per ml to kind of reduce the amount of injected solution. Yeah. Okay. And over how long a period do you give that? Is that over? Is that like just injecting it in like you do with a contrast angiogram or is it a slowish infusion over 30 minutes or something like that? So it's actually over 15 minutes. Okay, so it's actually quite a wrap, and that's in each side. So 15 minutes in one side, and then 15 minutes in the other side. Exactly. Okay, so actually, from a procedural point of view, you could comfortably be in and out, let's say, within the hour, including puncture time and everything else. Okay, and with regards to status migranus, what are you seeing? Are you seeing the same sorts of results as you saw when treating patients with an underlying mass lesion? So immediate response and then a sort of prolonged light response as well? So with status migraine, you know, after the initial results were very promising, we started following these patients for months. And we started prospectively collecting the MIDAS score, which is the sense of the disability attributed to migraine before and after the procedure. So three months before and three months after the procedure. And, you know, we saw that there was a dramatic difference in the post-procedure MIDAS. So there was clearly a reduction in multiple components on the MIDAS scale. So at least we know for the next three months, there is an advantage as compared to the pre-procedure migraine disability. Now we've actually followed one of our patients, we've uh, followed all the way to one year now. And surprisingly, that the reason we were following is that some people actually want to keep the option of coming back and getting a second treatment. So that's why we you know, follow them to see if there is recurrence uh, if they have an initial response and now they have a recurrence, perhaps they could benefit from a second treatment. And so far, we haven't found anybody 
who needed a second treatment, I think the only patient that we're potentially considering is one that has gone one year after the treatment and said the first six months were very good and for the last six months it's been progressively coming back and she would actually like to consider having a second treatment. So that is very fascinating that why is the effect so prolonged, the therapeutic benefit so prolonged, and in multiple aspects of migraine. So it's very fascinating that a drug and the treatment that's only a few minutes and probably one hour at best is causing a prolonged therapeutic benefit. And again, as you mentioned, that perhaps there is this central desensitization that's attributing or contributing to the longevity of the benefit. Well, that's really interesting because based on what you said earlier, you know, I think if I remember correctly, you said up to one third of people actually at some point in their life basically are at risk of severe migraine or status migraineness, if I understood correctly, which raises the question of potentially, what if you intervened early with people who had started to have migraines and you did this treatment, do you potentially alter the long-term course of the underlying pathophysiology? which obviously you probably can't answer at the current stage, but it certainly raises a very interesting question of effectively a one-hour procedure potentially significantly altering the outcome of patients with this disease. What would you respond to me saying something like that? (laughs) I think that you are making a very important point. One can actually conceptualize that perhaps people who get a series of treatment, maybe one, maybe two, at an early stage would perhaps have a much better course over the years as compared to someone who did not. The challenge obviously is to identify those who are at risk for having a poor or high level of disability with migraine in the years to follow. But it's actually a very interesting concept that perhaps you could alter the long-term course of migraine or severe migraines by intervening early, which is something that we see in the multiple disease processes that early intervention perhaps does modify the long-term natural history of the disease. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's fascinating, actually, really, if you think about it, because, I mean, all right, we, t- we talk about as interventionists now being swamped with a mechanical thrombectomy. I think if we were to now put on top of that <laughs> migraines at an early stage, we'd have to have five or six biplanes at every neuroscience center uh, up and down every country, I think. So, you know, certainly that would be fascinating. But in terms of patient benefit, you could definitely see a very significant improvement for patients if you could alter the prognosis like this. Yeah, it would be uh, fascinating. Have you potentially treated any patients with any other sorts of headaches, you know, cluster headaches or any of these other rarer but equally severe and debilitating headaches? So our experience has been mainly in the last few years, we've shifted to status migraineus. I think we've had idiopathic unilateral headaches, which probably could have fitted in the cluster headache category, but that's been an infrequent, like a one patient or so, so it's a little hard to make. I mean, obviously, they had the relief and all of that. And, you know, we've had patients where we just injected one side because the headache was dislocalized on one side. So I think that, yes, there is some experience to suggest that perhaps the therapeutic potential beyond just status migraineus. We've also tried that in patients with refractory trigeminal neuralgia, with refractory trigeminal neuralgia, it seemed like the benefit is short-acting. So we've seen benefit up to three days, but then the trigeminal neuralgia actually does come back. So we're not seeing the same sustained effect that we see with uh, status migraineus when it comes down to refractory trigeminal neuralgia. Okay, that's interesting. And are you injecting the lidocaine into the same position there? Because you mentioned this small vessel 
that is derived from the middle meningeal artery and supplies the trigeminal ganglion? Or are you trying to target that vessel or, or have your catheter slightly more proximal so that you get some infusion into that vessel as well as the dura? Is it same or? You're absolutely right that we actually bring the catheter more proximally for a trigeminal neuralgia treatment. The trick obviously is that these branches that go towards the trigeminal ganglion are very small and at times hard to identify on a routine angiogram, even a selective angiogram from the middle meningeal artery. So it's a little bit difficult to actually see where the origin is, but we do actually inject more proximally. Okay. And I mean, as I sort of mentioned earlier, chronic subdural hemorrhages are currently under investigation with regards to embolization of the middle meningeal vessels and hence uh, reduction of the neovascularization of the sort of the sac around the subdural hematoma. And we're waiting uh, eagerly the results of several RCTs, but it's looking like those are going to come back positive. And certainly there's some preliminary evidence that patients with headaches from the chronic subdural hemorrhage seem to have some relief from embolization of the dural blood vessels. So would you like to comment on that, Professor Qureshi? So in chronic subdural hemorrhage, at some point, the bleeding, the initial bleeding, which actually happens from the dural veins, changes over to branches from the middle meningeal artery. So in, there is an outer rim that surrounds the chronic subdural hematoma, and that outer rim is very vascular, and it derives its branches from the tributaries of the middle meningeal artery, and that leads to re-bleeding. So obviously patients with chronic subdural hemorrhage actually have chronic headaches, and part of it is presumably because there's dural stretch, and the dural membrane itself has pain nerve ending. And secondly is this hypervascularity within the tributaries of the middle meningeal arteries. So patients who are predisposed to migraines, obviously now you've actually added more blood vessels into the genesis of migraines, so triggering migraines again. So the thought has been, and the initial data is supportive, that if you obliterate the blood vessels or the branches of the middle meningeal artery, one, you're reducing the vascularity that's actually going toward the subdural hematoma, and secondly, also obliterating the blood vessels that actually are surrounded by the unmyelinated pain nerve endings. So that's, I think, a mechanism that we understand would actually help with the headaches that are attributed to chronic subdural hematomas. Now, the long-term relevance is a little bit more difficult to assess, particularly if there is no underlying subdural hemorrhage. So you obliterate the branches of the middle meningeal artery and you're doing it just for the headaches. So one thing that we don't understand well is that Anytime you embolize these blood vessels, at some point there is revascularization in the tributaries. And the new blood vessels that are generated from collaterals from other blood vessels that supply the dura, apart from the middle meningeal artery, are they actually going to start acting as a source for migraine or not? Yeah. So that's the doubt. That was going to be my follow-on question, actually. So we're sort of looking at obliteration of the middle meningeal vessels for chronic subdurals. And we're at the beginning of this journey, so we don't know what's right or what's wrong really at the moment. But my concern would be exactly as you said, that if you block off the middle meningeal arteries, maybe for, for migraine, maybe you do get this temporary relief. But once you revascularize the dura, whether that, especially if that ends up coming from peel blood vessels, well, then you've got a real, a much more complicated problem to deal with. And so, whereas if you were, as you've been doing, injecting the lidocaine and the headache comes back, well, it's a much more straightforward and probably a far safer proposition to come back and repeat that procedure 
And as you said, it's a sort of 60 minutes if it's both sides, can be done transradially, can be done with the patient awake. Whereas with liquid embolics, potentially, you know, you have the EC, the extra external carotid to internal carotid artery anastomoses, and one false move there could, could result in uh, a devastating complication that would far outweigh probably the benefits of, uh, of a migraine treatment. I think probably an injection of a drug might be a much better solution and probably would be my preferred option if I was a patient. Hopefully I never am. <laughs> but is that what you would say as well? Yeah, I would agree with you, Paul. I think that some things to consider here are that if you embolize the middle meningeal artery and with a liquid embolic agent, the proximal part of the artery is gone. So the revascularization has no access anymore. So you just simply block the gate to the set of the blood vessel that are actually leading to migraines. The other thing obviously is, even though it's a small risk, but nonetheless, sometimes there can be contributions to the ophthalmic artery. Sometimes there can be contributions to the facial nerve from the middle meningeal artery. So there are actually some risks there as well. With lidocaine injection, even if you have involvement of those blood vessels, it's only temporary. But a liquid embolic or a particulate embolic procedure, you probably have the risk that's going to be more long. It's a longer acting complication or long sustained complication. Yeah, certainly. I mean, when we are treating dural AV fistulas with liquid embolics and, and you have to potentially go near those anastomoses, we have to warn the patients that there can be permanent side effects, obviously damage to the nerves, loss of vision, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it would be wise to avoid those, at least at this early stage when we're not quite sure, what is the actual role of the dura in instigating the headache? So, you know, the path of least risk, I would argue, is the lidocaine. And so just from that point of view, have you had any patients have any complications from the intraarterial injections? So far, we haven't. But again, one has to mention that the number of patients is too small. So a complication that already has an incidence between 1% to 2% at most, we haven't really done enough patients that we can have an adequate level of confidence that this does not happen at all. Yeah, no, 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 I completely agree. But like we said at the very beginning, this seems to be, it feels to me like it's something that is coming. And it certainly seems to be that with appropriate patient selection, and maybe that's exactly where advanced imaging modalities, the MIDAS score, all of these sorts of things will come into play so that we do select those patients who are most likely to benefit from these sorts of more invasive treatments over the taking of the sumatriptans or what have you. And do you see in your sort of experience, do you think that there's potentially a role for junctive medications, so intra-arterial injections of steroids or anything else? What do you think? So that's a very good question. Um, initially, when we first started in 2014, we actually used to use the combination of lidocaine and uh, steroid, solimedrol. And I think it was solimedrol, it was actually a steroid. And then over time, it became clear that just the lidocaine alone was enough. So we eliminated the steroid component from there. But as you know, that there are new vasoactive medications that are becoming available, and some of them in intravenous form. And the question is whether using them in would give a higher level of therapeutic benefit, and we do not know. Yeah. And do you think, for example, so we have other local anesthetic agents, aside from lidocaine, things like bupivacaine and other agents. I presume that you've been, been sticking to lidocaine, but do you think that there's a scope there as well to look for alternative agents, perhaps with even longer half-lives or something along those lines? What do you think about that? I think that that's definitely a very important question. 
I think that the reason that we have avoided that is that with lidocaine, there was already some data about intra-arterial injection in the middle meningeal arteries for potentially when patients were being treated for dural arteriovenous fistulas or embolization was done for dural tumors. So just a provocative test. So there was some data to support that the intra-arterial lidocaine can be given and is tolerated. To change an agent, obviously there are agents that lidocaine is probably one of the older agents. Now we have a whole range of amides that actually have higher level of therapeutic benefit or at least the right pharmacokinetic properties to generate a higher level of therapeutic benefit. And we actually have avoided that, at least for now, because we only wanted to have one experimental theory at the time, which is whether an injection of anesthetic actually is of therapeutic benefit. And if we can confirm that, and other people can confirm that, then essentially the next stage would be that perhaps there is a better amide than lidocaine that could be used, and perhaps even generate a greater level of therapeutic benefit. Yeah. And do you see, for example, potential for dedicated devices within this arena to target headaches? Um, I'm not sure how those could be developed or what those would look like. We've seen um, significant improvements in neurovascular devices in general within the last 20 years. And some of the stuff that's on the horizon is like the Synchron device, for example. I mean, it's borderline science fiction. But do you see that there's a potential for development of specific devices? Yes, the answer is yes. I think that the the next step here is that instead of a liquid injection that obviously has a first-pass effect, perhaps something can be deployed that's more sustained release of a lidocaine or another anesthetic. And that's something that we've been working on. I'm sure that's an area of interest. I think that the first stage obviously was, does it make sense to even inject (laughs) an anesthetic agent into a middle meningeal artery and does it have therapeutic benefit that's explained beyond just chance or a placebo effect? And fortunately, I think we are getting there. So now is the next step that how can we maximize the full potential of this procedure. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're certainly the expert in the field, as far as I'm concerned, and you've developed this from very logical first principles, actually. So it's fascinating to hear your insights and how you've developed everything, really, from finding the blood vessels that supply the trigeminal ganglion to to starting from first principles with the dural stretch to actually treating patients and then following them up for the longest period of time and then seeing how this treatment can potentially develop. I think it's fascinating, and and my hat's off to you for this real, really very potentially huge impact that you could have and this treatment could have for patients all around the world. So thanks very much for that, Professor Qureshi. Do you think, is there anything else that you'd like to add just towards the end of this conversation? I think that the next questions here are the right group of patients, I think that we need to work more towards identifying who are the best patients for this treatment. And perhaps even start exploring something that you suggested, that maybe there is a prophylactic role here that may have some long-term consequences or long-term benefits as well. So I think one aspect is towards uh, uh, the identifying the right group of patients. I think the second thing is the acceptability of the intervention. I think that from an interventionist standpoint, and more and more people try it, and they see the results, I think we're gaining more acceptance from the interventional community. I think there's probably still a component of education and data sharing that needs to be done with physicians that actually usually manage migraines through medical treatment, and also perhaps more education that's required from a patient perspective so they understand what the 
this therapeutic intervention can look like and what to expect. And I understand that we have to generate more data to achieve all of that. The fascinating thing for me has been over the years that medical school, we're very much, at least in the UK, we're very much ingrained into thinking that RCT evidence is the pinnacle of medicine. And one of the things that I've come to realize in practice is that often it's that early observational data that really sort of opens the door to the unknown and that eventually leads to the pivotal RCT. And I think what you've done here is you've, you haven't just opened the door, you've kind of kicked it open and said, we really need to start trying to work out what's happening with migraine and, and think about this at a more deeper level. And so, like I said earlier, my hat's off to you for really beginning to question everything that we thought we knew about migraine and for also developing and being the pioneer in this space with regards to the treatment of migraines and headaches from other causes that are likely to be durally based. Certainly in the UK, I would love to be involved with any RCTs going forward and my team at the Royal London Hospital, I'm sure we would love to be involved. Convincing the headache specialists could be a different matter, but as you say, I think a little bit of education and sometimes perhaps when the headache specialist themselves actually <laughs> requires the injection, that can be the thing that suddenly shifts the mindset, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that there is a general agreement that there's a proportion of patients with migraine that are not getting the right therapeutic benefit with the existing therapy treatments that we have. I think that there's a unanimous agreement there that the existing therapeutic options are not providing 100% migraine control in a lot of patients. I think that's one thing that we can agree is how best to take that patient population, identify them and provide a therapeutic option that's new and perhaps works through a different mechanism that overcomes the shortcoming of the existing therapeutic options. And can I ask, Professor Qureshi, if anyone listening to this is interested in maybe reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you or contact you? Oh, just by email. It's q-u-r-e-s-h-a-i at gmail.com. And, you know, we always welcome thoughts, questions, even a different viewpoint. It always is more learning for us to even understand a different viewpoint. So we're more than we're very happy to answer any queries and, you know, engage in any dialogue that is necessary. Okay, that's really wonderful. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to hear you speak last year at Brain Conference. I hope you'll be able to join us in London this year. And for any of the uh, listeners out there who are interested in interventional neuro, how the uh, whole practice of interventional neuro is progressing and the new scope of what we are doing as has just been perfectly identified by Professor Qureshi. Please consider joining us in London or online for Brain Conference this year. It will be happening from the 4th to the 6th of December and Backtable listeners will also be viable for a discount by using the code Backtable10. So please consider joining us and being part of what we hope is one of the most innovative conferences with regards to interventional neuroradiology going on at the moment. Yeah, I would endorse that conference. I had a really wonderful time, a very good learning experience. So, <laughs> yes, strongly encourage everybody to attend that conference. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, 
Design and Digital Marketing, led by Brian Schmitz. Social Media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>